Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, guest podcast editor for pediatrics. Dr. Parker is director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today is Wednesday, September 5th, 2007. In our podcast today, we will be speaking with Peter Lawson, MD, about an article published in the May 2007 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, Pediatric Staff Perspectives on Organ Donation After Cardiac Death in Children. Dr. Lawson is Director of the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit at Children's Hospital in Boston, and we are happy to have him with us today. Good morning, Dr. Lawson. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. Donation after cardiac death, or DCD, is a relatively new procedure. Would you please give us an overview of of donation after cardiac death, what it is, why we do it, how do we do it, and so forth? Uh, Of course. This is a a complex set of questions, and uh, I think, first of all, to, to note that there continues to be a disparity between the number of patients waiting organ donation and the actual number of organs transplanted. Uh, And this continues to be a major healthcare issue that is uh, addressed by a number of government and regulatory agencies, such as the Department for Human Health Services, uh, Health Resource and Service Administration, uh, Institute of Medicine, uh, UNOS, and and the Joint Commission in Healthcare. So it's achieved uh, and received national prominence Uh, Over the last couple of years, primarily through a donation breakthrough collaborative sponsored through the HRSA, uh, the number of organ donations has started to trend up again. But donation after cardiac death or um, procurement of select organs from a non-heart beating donor um, is seen as a possible means by which to increase the overall uh, number of organs available for transplantation. I think it's important also to note that it's not actually a new concept. Uh, I think it's receiving much more attention now, but uh, the first organ donations um, in the the early history of transplantation were obtained either from living donors or from patients declared dead uh, after irreversible cessation of respiratory or cardiac function. And I think this renewed interest to the potential of DCD to increase the procurement of organs um, has come not only from... Uh, government, regulatory agencies, organizations such as UNOS and the Association of Organ Procurement uh, Organizations, but also from uh, families um, of patients with devastating and irreversible neurological injury who have uh, wanted to pursue this form of donation when brain death criteria uh, could not be met. So it's not a new concept, but it's certainly receiving much more uh, publicity. Uh, why do it? Well, I think the um, over the last uh, 
decade in particular, there's been an increase in the total number of deceased or cardiac death donors. Uh, now they're over 5% of the total number of deceased donors. It includes both cardiac death and, and brain death criteria. So while there's an increasing number of these um, procedures being formed uh, or, or performed, uh, I think there's also been uh, an understanding that the organs are actually very viable and useful from uh, patients um, as part of the uh, DCD program. Uh, primarily, uh, kidney and liver transplantation uh, are involved with DCD. If you look at the outcomes from kidney donation uh, from DCD donors, uh, there is an increased risk for uh, early graft failure, um, but uh, there is not an increased risk. Actually, I should correct that. There is an increased risk for delayed graft function in the immediate post-transplant period from a DCD donor. Uh, however, the longer-term graft survival and patient survival is no different between a DCD donor and a, uh, a brain-dead donor. So for renal transplantation, these uh, organs are uh, an important source of additional um, gifts or organs for patients on the, on the renal transplant list. For liver transplantation, there does appear to be an increased risk for early graft failure, but uh, those that survive that early risk for failure, the three-year graft survival and patient survival is no different when compared to liver transplants from patients who met brain death criteria. So there's an increasing uh, emphasis perhaps on this, this population of patients as organ donors, and there is good evidence that the organs procured in this circumstance uh, function well. How it's done um, is quite variable. Uh, the pediatric experience with DCD is quite small compared to adults. Uh, there's wide variability among protocols, um, including guidelines to non-therapeutic interventions to enhance organ viability, uh, and the methods by which uh, withdrawal of life support is undertaken, and even to the time to declaring cessation of the circulation and, and declaration of death. Um, and I think that's perhaps one of the problems that underlies DCD is some of the inconsistency that exists uh, between institutions. Um, at Children's Hospital in Boston, we went through a, uh, an extended period, over two years in fact, of evaluating all aspects of DCD uh, with a task force developed uh, that was multidisciplinary uh, and to determine whether DCD was in fact consistent with the mission of Children's Hospital. One of the stumbling blocks, one of the areas of debate among the uh, members of the task force was how do you undertake donation after cardiac death um, that is consistent with all of the uh, dignity and current methods by which we would uh, withdraw support from patients. And it was very important that the DCD protocol in no way compromise that. The variability between institutions, I think, is um, relates to a number of areas, but primarily areas such as 
uh, where the withdrawal of life support takes place, um, <clears throat> in, uh, whether it be in the intensive care unit or in the operating room. But the uh, withdrawal process uh, needs to not only factor in the importance of the uh, maintaining the independence, if you like, of the withdrawal of life support process, but also the concerns for optimizing or maintaining organ function so that the procured organ is, in fact, going to work post-transplantation. These are distinct and separate processes, uh, and there can't be any blurring of the margin. At the same time, the process by which you conduct DCD has to factor both of these uh, important issues. So the, the, the time frame for undertaking DCD, I think, can be broken down into two components. There's a warm ischemic time and a cold ischemic time uh, in relation to the organ. The warm ischemic time is really the start of, uh, from the time of withdrawal of life support, whether it be in the operating room or in the intensive care unit. But treatment is withdrawn, the patient is extubated. And uh, over the next minutes to, uh, which varies between patients, of course, um, but over an, up to 60 minutes, the patient is dying. Uh, there is no mechanical support of the circulation uh, or of the or, or, or ventilation as well. So there is a period of time where the patient is dying, um, and drugs are administered to make sure the patient remains comfortable, and the withdrawal of life support process is maintained, as you would for any other patient that you would uh, elect to or decide to withdraw uh, treatment on. That warm ischemic time, the withdrawal process, um, ha is time limited um, because of the risk for uh, ischemic injury to the organs you wish to uh, or you may donate. Um, ideally, for a kidney, less than one hour. For a liver, around 30 minutes. Uh, for pancreas, less than one hour. So there is a time limited frame, and between 30 and 40 percent of patients may not die within that period of time and be transported, say, from the operating room, transported back to the intensive care unit to, uh, to die. Once the patient has had, um, uh, has died, and uh, this is a very important distinction here between uh, acircula the concept of acirculation and death, um, the second phase, if you like, of the warm ischemic time is a period of no circulation before death is declared. That's very important because of the concept of auto-resuscitation. And uh, where there is, without any intervention, there is a spontaneous recovery of electrical and mechanical activity of the heart. Uh, it's unclear why that occurs. You can't predict if it's going to occur. Uh, and it is a rare event, but nevertheless may occur. And clearly, it's important that the patient be dead at the time organs are procured. So there's a necessary waiting time from the period when there is no flow or a circulation to the time at which death is, re is actually declared. And that uh, accounts for the um, possibility of auto-resuscitation. Now, there's quite a bit of variability in that waiting period between acirculation and declaring death. 
uh, between two minutes and up to 10 minutes in some centres. After death has been declared, there's been no uh, spontaneous recovery of the circulation within that defined time period. Uh, organ procurement starts and there's um, a cold perfusion period where uh, usually laparotomy is performed, um, cannulas are placed in the uh, vena cava to uh, exsanguinate and uh, reperfuse the body with um, cold perfusate and then organ procurement uh, continues after that period of time. So that's a, a long discussion about the what, why, and how. Um, that gives you a broad overview, although there are some differences between centers as to the way in which the actual process is undertaken. Thank you for that overview. It's very clear that developing a policy on DCD is not an easy task. How would you recommend an institution go about developing it? And are there differences in uh, hospital policies with regards to children compared to adults? Well, that's a very important question, and I think one that cannot be overlooked uh, and needs to take into consideration the environment of the institution uh, and the goals and mission of the institution. Needs, the institution also needs to understand the culture uh, of its employees and how what the impact will be on staff. But we also need to be aware of the um, societal issues and, and also um, guidelines established by government and regulatory agencies. First of all, I think it needs to be multidisciplinary. I don't think it's, and it needs to be very well planned. It's not something that you can do on the fly and say, okay, well, we're going to do, we have a patient where parents have requested to do donation after cardiac death. We're going to do that now. There are just so many different processes that need to be considered in developing a protocol that to do it ad hoc like that is going to lead to um, potential conflict within institutions uh, and possibly conflict with families as to how the process is undertaken. Now, there are differences between pediatric and adult patients in terms of the withdrawal of life support, uh, including the rights and advocacy of parents and families for their children, uh, as well as the ethical and emotional factors surrounding the process of withdrawal of care. And that's one of the reasons that there needs to be the DCD is an institutional concern, and it needs to be developed, a protocol developed with multidisciplinary input. Um, at Children's in Boston, we, have, we had a, a CEO asked us to establish a task force, which was multidisciplinary, and over a two-year period, we debated all aspects of uh, donation after cardiac death before we developed a protocol that we can now implement. It's interesting to note that the two-year period, though, uh, is, is a direct reflection on how complex this issue is. Um, we met often. We uh, reviewed all aspects of the DCD process, and uh, we did not reach a consensus at the end of this uh, two-year process, um, and was split about two-thirds for doing DCD and one-third not in favor of doing DCD within the institution. We weren't looking for consensus. But I think the fact that we couldn't reach consensus and that, the, in fact, the voting was quite polarized, nobody was really in the middle ground, 
is a reflection on just how complex the issue is. So um, it needs to be multidisciplinary. I think also um, to follow on from this, we need to be aware of the external um, influences and perhaps obligations to organ procurement organizations and regulatory bodies. Uh, that includes the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services uh, and their requirements for organ donation and the definitive language they have in terms of implications for ICU staff, in terms of um, uh, obtaining consent from parents for organ donation. Um, the Institute of Medicine has now put out three reports on organ donation, the most recent in May 2006, where they really are moving towards a goal within society that people see organ donation as a social responsibility, including donation after cardiac death. Um, and, and so that's another factor to consider whenever making uh, the de decisions. And they, the IOM report does give some guidelines as to how to develop a, uh, a protocol within uh, an institution. Um, the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations uh, in uh, a policy initiative, I think it was called Healthcare at the Crossroads, has also placed um, organ donation uh, as one of their national goals and um, in particular has included the development of DCZ protocols within, within centers that undertake transplantation. So there's another regulatory uh, aspect that needs to be considered um, when developing your protocol. Uh, and, and finally, the organ procurement organizations are also very active in um, promoting DCD protocols. And in fact, in a, in a by change to their bylaws, uh, as of January 1, 2007, uh, all um, organ procurement and transplant network organizations um, OPOs and transplant hospitals must develop uh, and then comply with protocols to, to facilitate the recovery of organs from DCD donors. The reason I mention those is that they are substantial and significant external factors to be considered whenever developing or, or when you develop your protocol within an institution. Um, they can't be ignored. Uh, they, need to be, they need to be part of a collaborative and multidisciplinary approach. You mentioned that the acirculation time um, is quite variable from institution to institution, ranging from two minutes to ten minutes. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that that would have a substantial effect on how viable the organs would be. Um, how does an institution choose uh, uh, acirculation time to pr uh, pronounce death, and do the regulatory bodies have any direction on that? How, why is there such variability, and how does an institution decide? Once again, a very difficult question to answer. <clears throat> I think there, it's important to separate out the um, time to death for making sure the patient is dead before you actually start a procedure, such as procuring the organ, uh, and then the balance of that against the overall ischemic time in the organ and the subsequent organ viability. Um, there is no uh, guideline, and I think it's one of the problems with DCD, in that there are no that, is, it, that there are inconsistent practices. 
for instance, there are two or three institutions in the United States that, that where their time from a circulation to declaring death is two minutes, based on the fact that there have been no recorded cases of auto-resuscitation uh, beyond 65 seconds. So that assumes that there is there, there will not be any recovery. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that there that there is irreversible cessation of function. And that's one of the stumbling blocks that organizations and, and, and people deal with as to making sure the patient is really dead, that you don't violate the dead donor rule. And there is very little information, certainly no prospective or even uh, detailed retro, uh, retrospective research done uh, in this field. We have uh, a group of uh, an institution that have spent a long time evaluating all the available literature on uh, when is dead dead, if you if you like, uh, and looked at aspects of consciousness and uh, pain, and based on their um, evaluation and and, uh, and perusal of the of the available literature. We establish five minutes as the appropriate time. Now, five minutes is also what is recommended in the IOM report and is, is the most common time frame used in centers undertaking um, DCD across the United States. But there are other centers um, that will use 10 minutes. And there's at least one paper that has demonstrated that 10 minute, a waiting period of 10 minutes does not affect the overall graft function following renal transplantation. So there needs to be a lot more work done in this area. The, the, the middle ground recommended by IOM reports and followed through by most OPOs is five minutes. But there is considerable variability, and I think that's one of the areas that needs to be addressed and to be firmly uh, determined because you can't use two minutes because you want to transplant a heart or a lung, right. but we'll wait five minutes so we can do a kidney. It has it can't be organ driven. It has to be driven by is the patient dead, right. and until we get that right, we're at risk of losing public trust in this process. What about the use of medications to preserve graft function before the de declaration of death? A controversial issue. I think most centers agree now that. Um, one of the most important tenets of withdrawal of life support is that you can't, that you do not hasten death, um, and it's important that the, there be a distinct separation between the withdrawal of life support, withdrawal of life support, and the procurement of the organ, so that individuals involved with organ procurement must not, in any way, be involved with the decision to withdraw life support or actually actually take part in the withdrawal of life support that needs to, that whole process of withdrawal of life support needs to be continued in the with the same uh, dignity and compassion that we uh, apply to any patient that we undertake this step upon uh, so keeping the processes separate is very important part of withdrawal of life support is to make sure the patients are not in any um, distress and uh, part of normal withdrawal of life support is to provide uh, sedation, opioids, to make sure that patients are not distressed uh, in any way. So that those drugs, narcotics, 
benzodiazepines can be administered to patients during the withdrawal of life support, provided they're administered by physicians, clinicians who, are, who know the patient and who are administering it in a compassionate method as part of the withdrawal of life support. In no way can those drugs be administered in an effort to hasten death, to suppress respiration, to um, make the process move faster so that the patient dies within a set time frame. That is um, completely uh, illegal and forbidden. But on the other hand, it's important that we continue to manage patients like we would for anybody we withdraw life support. Now, other drugs that are sometimes administered, uh, drugs such as phentolamine have been administered in the past and are part of some protocols. Uh, the, uh, and the aim of that is to provide some vasodilation and, and perhaps improve uh, organ function after uh, procurement. There's no data that it makes any difference, and most organizations, most OPOs, I believe, will uh, don't recommend that a drug like phentolamine be given uh, prior to death, particularly as it's a drug that could, in fact, hasten death. Heparin is given um, in most circumstances, uh, but once again, it's important that it not be given too early or in a dose that's going to result in the patient. Uh, bleeding, for instance, that could hasten death. So any drug that's administered should not be administered to hasten death. In our own protocol, heparin is administered um, at a point just prior to acirculation when the patient's blood pressure and heart rate have, has substantially declined. One of the other interventions that has been sometimes advocated has been whether or not additional catheters should be placed prior to withdrawal of life support so that you can hasten the uh, cold ischemic time and the, and the exsanguination and reperfusion of perfusate to, uh, to the body after death has been declared. I think most centers would also um, not undertake that type of uh, intervention either because it, it is seen as um, a potential source of harm and uh, unnecessary intervention. Um, so, in answer to your question, you should treat the patient as you would for anybody uh, you were withdrawing life support. Uh, and really, the only drug that needs to be administered, perhaps needs to be administered just prior to death, is heparin. But other, otherwise, there should be no interventions that could hasten death. One of the concerns with DCD in children is the need for the family to leave the child as soon as death is declared so that the organs can be harvested promptly. Could you tell us about your experience with this aspect of DCD? I think this is um, the, the critical aspect here is the trust you develop with families. And in most circumstances, DCD is undertaken because a family has requested organ donation that then requires a detailed discussion with the family, both by the intensive care staff and the OPO staff, as to what that process involves. Working out a time frame that family can or family members can attend and be at the patient to say goodbye. Uh, working out the time frame within the operating room, uh, organizing staff. So there is a lot of organizational logistical things that need to go on. And part of that is a discussion with the family that they clearly understand that their request for organ donation means that we, in this circumstance, means we have to do it a certain way and that there is a t that it is time limited. Uh, 
most centers have developed ways, in fact, all centers that protocols that I've reviewed have developed ways in which they can maximize the time the family spends with the, the patient. In our own protocol, where we withdraw support of patients in the operating room, the family comes to the operating room. Uh, they hold the, the, the child at the time uh, we withdraw support. We try and simulate the operating room environment to the intensive care unit environment with all the other um, uh, aspects, including other family members, um, personal uh, touches that are necessary by the family, all within the operating room so that the withdrawal of life support is a very uh, respectful, compassionate process. Uh, once a circulation has been declared, the family, uh, having been prior informed, know that we will then place the patient onto an operating table and wheel from one operating room into an adjacent operating room where we would then start to prepare the child for um, organ procurement if after the five-minute waiting period there is no auto resuscitation. The family stays with the patient until we move to the second operating room, but they know that the time we move is the time that we would be needing to start preparing for uh, possible organ procurement. That's a difficult time, I think, for all staff, and is, it's why I say it's critical that the families be well prepared for the event, but also that we um, make it as compassionate as possible. And that includes having known staff. We don't hand off the patient to somebody else who the parents don't know. That includes nursing and physician staff. Um, includes the social work, clergy. Anybody that's been working with the, with the family and the patient continues to do so. Um, other centers have uh, protocols where the family comes to the operating room, the patient is on the operating table, and treatment is withdrawn, but uh, prior to treatment being withdrawn, the patient is actually uh, prepped and double draped, and the family is able to sit next to the patient, uh, hold uh, the patient's hand or their head, and, and remain in contact with the patient until a circulation and then death is declared and then they're asked to leave. So I think there are various ways it can be done, but I certainly believe it can be done in a very compassionate way, but it needs a lot of training, it needs education, uh, protocol review, it needs uh, multidisciplinary input. Thank you very much, Dr. Clausen. That's been a very interesting uh, talk today. Thank you. We have been speaking today with Dr. Peter Lawson, Director of the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit at Boston Children's Hospital, about the article, Pediatric Staff Perspectives on Organ Donation After Cardiac Death in Children, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in May 2007. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Pediatric Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals as well as continuing education credit. Members of the pediatric section receive PCCM as a member benefit. 
For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. Join your colleagues February 2nd through the 6th, 2008 in Honolulu, Hawaii, USA for SCCM's 37th Critical Care Congress. Bring the entire family for this special Congress, which will combine learning with ample leisure and tour opportunities, making the 2008 Congress one you will not soon forget. You won't want to miss such highlights as the modified schedule, pre-Congress courses, Hopper Pass, casual dress code, the post-Congress event on Kauai, and more. The Society's 2008 Congress is not just a meeting, it's an experience. For details or to register, visit www.sccm.org.